When he saw the man fall onto the subway tracks, Wesley Autry didn't hesitate. With the lights of the oncoming train visible, Autry, a construction worker, jumped down to the tracks and pushed the man down into a drainage trench between the rails, covering him with his own body. The train passed over them, leaving a trail of grease on Autry's cap. Autry, later invited to the State of Union address and praised by the President for his bravery, downplayed his actions. I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. What if I told you that you, too, can save a life, even many lives? Do you have a bottle of water or a can of soda on the table beside you as you read this book? If you are paying for something to drink when safe drinking water comes out of the tap, you have money to spend on things you don't really need. Around the world, over 700 million people struggle to live each day on less than you paid for that drink. Because they can't afford even the most basic health care for their families, their children may die from simple, easily treatable diseases like diarrhea. You can help them and you don't have to risk getting hit by an oncoming train to do it. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Emma Harvey. In 2009, Australian philosopher and author Peter Singer published The Life You Can Save. It was a rigorous ethical argument, a moral guidebook, and a resounding call to action. In it, Peter laid out the case for why those of us in affluent nations could have meaningful impact improving the lives of those living in extreme poverty. It was an ambitious, uncompromising, runaway success. Now, on its 10th anniversary, The Life You Can Save is being republished, and all profits donated to Peter's organisation of the same name, that scrutinises charities, curates recommendations, and directs people to donate their money to groups that will have maximum practical impact. Peter is on the phone with us all the way from the US. Peter, thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Emma. Good to talk to you. Now, it's your view that where world poverty is concerned, giving to charity is neither noble nor generous. It's a moral duty. Can you explain this further? Yes. I think that for those of us fortunate enough to live in affluent countries and not to be right at the bottom of the economic ladder in those affluent countries, but to be middle class or above and to have something to spare in terms of what we what we uh, earn and what we spend on. Uh, I think not to share, not to do something that can effectively help people in extreme poverty in low income countries is wrong. And so to avoid doing what's wrong isn't in itself noble or or charity, really. It's simply living an ethically decent life. Now, having said that, there are limits, I suppose, to where I would draw the line between people simply saying, well, people are just not doing what's wrong and saying what they're doing is admirable. And when people go way above the normal standard, I'm prepared to say, 
given the pressures in a society to conform, not to not to go beyond what your fellows are doing, that might truly be admirable. But for an ordinary middle class person in Australia to give, say, 10% of their income to the most effective charities they can find seems to me to be something that's uh, okay, what they're doing, what, the way they're living is not is not wrong, but they could still do more and I'm not going to be particularly effusive in my praise for, for giving 10% in those circumstances. Right. And many of us, we consider our lifestyles modest and and our income average when objectively you say we live in absurd luxury. We have washing machines and internet, plumbing, clean water. Why do you think it's so common for us to become complacent or even ignorant about our own privilege? It's very natural for us to compare ourselves with those who are around us and who we see all the time and to think perhaps by those standards, I, I may be average and doesn't everybody have washing machines and internet connections and you know, that list could have gone on, air conditioning mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but it helps to try to take a global perspective and to realize that uh, to be in the top 1% of the world in terms of income, uh, earning around 40,000 US dollars uh, will, will put you there. So let's say that's 60,000 Australian dollars, maybe 65,000, somewhere around there. Uh, mm. It's not really a lot and you're in the top 1% of the world. So uh, try to take that stance occasionally and then see how lucky you are to have all of those things that uh, we just mentioned. Right. And as you just mentioned with those numbers, your solution to poverty is not just theoretical in the book, it's quite calculable. You lay out specific percentages that each household could donate, starting with 1% of personal income for those who earn up to $100,000 per year and increasing thereafter to, I think, a maximum of 33% of income for those earning over $10 million. Where did you pull these numbers from? So the numbers were an attempt to find sums that really I hope nobody could object to, um, Mm. sort of minimum sums, uh, and then using figures that I have from the U.S. uh, Internal Revenue Service, the tax department in other words, um, to calculate how much would be raised if people did give according to those minimal amounts. And I was quite surprised to find that even using these, what I consider to be rather low levels, we would raise um, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, that by most expert standards would really be enough to bring everybody in extreme poverty, that is below the World Bank's extreme poverty line, which is currently $1.90 US per day. Um, So everybody living on less than that, you could bring them above that line, at which point uh, you would hope that they would be able to meet their basic needs. So people wouldn't have to go to bed hungry, wouldn't have to go without the most minimal basic health care or wouldn't would be able to educate their children. Uh, all of those things, I think, could be accomplished with these quite minimal amounts. Right. There are a lot of breathtaking and devastating statistics about global poverty. Uh, a recent figure that you quote in your book is that 5.4 million children under the ages of five die every year, half of them due to preventable conditions. But it can often be quite difficult to truly engage with these numbers on a human level. How do you get people to stop thinking about poverty in the abstract and start connecting with its human reality? 
I do try to tell stories about individuals um, rather than just give statistics. And uh, I hope that that will get people to have more idea of both what life is like for people in extreme poverty and also what they can do and sometimes how simple it is to do it. So one of these stories that I tell is about an organization called Development Media International, which uh, pays for radio ads in very poor countries to give people some health information and uh, in particular give them information about diseases that they or their children may have that are perfectly treatable but that they may not realize that they have this disease. So uh, one of these stories comes from Burkina Faso, one of the poorest countries in Africa, where um, a, a man tells a story about how his uh, small daughter was, was very ill and his neighbors in the village said, she's ill because uh, you had her outside um, during the harvest time and a bird must have flown over and that um, put a spell on her. So apparently there's a belief that if a bird flies over a sleeping child, the child can get ill from that. So the person you know, went to some sort of shaman who was supposed to help, be able to help with this, but of course it didn't do any good. Um, and the child was getting worse and worse and was pretty much close to being in a, in a coma and uh, you know, he was expecting the child to die when one of his neighbors uh, came around to chat and happened to bring his portable radio with him and he heard this ad which uh, he happened to hear this ad which described the symptoms of malaria and he realized that his child had exactly those symptoms and, and the ad not only described the symptoms but said if uh, someone you know has these symptoms, take them to the health clinic as soon as you can because this can be treated. So he took her to the health clinic and uh, she got the drug she needed and she survived and was completely well. And he says uh, she's now nicknamed the radio child because <laughs> without the radio and without that advertisement, she would be dead. Yeah, well, and your book is full of those sorts of compelling and human case studies, as you say, which are very convincing and if people are convinced by them they might start thinking about taking on your recommendations um, but some people have some counter arguments and one of them one of the common ones is some people say they're concerned about the reliability of their donation and where whether charity organizations are putting their money to effective ethical use i wonder if you can tell us a bit about your organization and the work it does to mitigate this i'm happy to tell you about the life you can save. Um, I should say, when you say it's my organization, I did found it um, and I'm chair of the board, but I don't run it as a hands-on activity. Uh, there's a, We have a wonderful executive director, a man called Charlie Bressler, who approached me after reading the first edition of The Life You Can Save and said, he told me that he'd had a successful career in the retail industry, had made as much money as he needed, but somehow it had never really harmonized with his values. He had the feeling that he'd, he'd done the wrong thing with his life in some sense. Um, but now that he, he had enough, uh, he was prepared to do something else. And would he like me to uh, take over as executive director or to act as executive director because we didn't have one before? Uh, and he was offering to do this without being paid at all. Uh, and he's done that since and he's built it up into a really effective organization. Uh, I tell him that he's actually on negative salary because uh, he doesn't get any, but he donates to the organization. Um, and I want to say, by the way, since you, know, you said at the beginning that profits are going to the life you can save, that I've never 
taken anything from the life you can save and I'm also a donor to it and I, I never will take anything from it. Uh, the idea of the organization though is to spread the ideas of the book. Um, that is to do two things, to encourage people to think about giving, uh, as we've been talking about, to, to show them that it's easy to give and to show them how to give effectively. And it does that by recommending organizations that have been uh, carefully vetted or audited by um, independent evaluators, independent charity evaluators who um, have professional researchers who are doing research into which are the most effective organizations. And they're not just looking at things like uh, balance sheets and how much goes into administration and fundraising, but they are going beyond that and they're looking at how successful are the programs on the ground? Do we really know that these interventions are saving lives or restoring sight or helping people to develop small businesses that then lead to them escaping poverty? Uh, they're really following through very thoroughly uh, to ensure that the programs of the organizations that we recommend are having the kind of impact that we want them to have. Uh, and that's one of the... Um the concerns that people raise about donating to charities. Another one is just simply that they're just one person in a big world and therefore their contribution is but a drop in the ocean. How do you respond to the disheartened and the defeatist among us? So firstly, uh, yes, you know, I'm one person and uh, so are many others. Even Bill Gates is just one person, although, well, maybe Bill and Melinda Gates are two people, but, but they can you know, they can do more because they have more resources, but, but anybody can do something. And uh, it really takes just a few hundred dollars sometimes to save a life. So the, the cost of the radio ads that I mentioned before uh, was costed out uh, in terms of the number of life saves as uh, likely to be around $700 per, per life saved. So there are very inexpensive ways, and if you can't afford $700, you can afford some part of it. And then you and others have contributed to saving a life, and it probably hasn't really forced you to sacrifice anything important. Uh, on the contrary, it m will have given you a sense of purpose and fulfillment uh, that you know you've done something really good. And I think a lot of people today worry about the fact that their lives don't have that sort of purpose, don't have that kind of meaning that we like to give to our lives. But by supporting people and helping people in extreme poverty, uh, that you can give that sort of meaning and purpose to your life. And you're not just an advocate of personal philanthropy. Your book also outlines the importance of big picture thinking. Currently, Australia, I think, spends about 0.21% of our gross national income on foreign aid. What's your advice to making sure that our politicians are doing their part also? Right. I, th I think it's shameful how little Australia spends, although um, I'm currently in the United States and it's equally shameful, or if anything, even more so that the United States also gives very little. Um, so both of these countries are really down near the bottom of the wealthy nations in terms of uh, what proportion of their gross national income they give in aid. And, and even the aid they give is not all targeted for to the poorest people uh, in both Australia and the United States. There is some element of uh, strategic interests or uh, local regional interests that influence where the aid goes. So become an active citizen, join organizations that are trying to, to do something about this, that are trying to 
improve Australia's aid policies uh, and get uh, a, a more reasonable percentage of gross national income given to uh, effective aid. Uh, just for comparison, the United Kingdom gives 0.7% of its gross national income in aid. In other words, it gives more than three times the percentage of its gross national income in aid that Australia does. Now, I spent some time in the United Kingdom, and I'm sure many of your listeners have. Has anybody thought, wow, this country is much wealthier than Australia? Um, I doubt it. I think most people who go from Australia to England think uh, England is really poorer than Australia. Yes, it has some very nice, beautiful, luxurious places, but uh, taken as a whole, uh, I think English people are, British people are less well off than Australians are. So why is it that they are still giving three times as much, more than three times as much of, of the country's income to foreign aid? Um, I put it down to the fact that they were prepared to make this a, a bipartisan issue. The major parties agreed not to play politics with it. Um, and that means that uh, the United Kingdom has met the UN recommended target of 0.7% which incidentally I think is a rather low target, but still um, it's good that they've met it. Uh, whereas Australia has in recent years drifted further and further down away from that target. Uh, and what can individual people who maybe are listening to this podcast do to put pressure on politicians and governments? Talk to your local member of parliament about what you want, that you think it's shameful that Australia is giving so little aid. Um, and look around for other organizations that are working together to change this. Uh, you can go online and look at organizations that are doing this. Uh, one of the charities we recommend in Australia is uh, Oxfam, and Oxfam is certainly trying to get the government to increase its foreign aid. So you could uh, talk to people at Oxfam about uh, what you can do to support their campaigns and the campaigns of other nonprofit organizations in Australia to uh, to do the, to change this. Um, the Life You Can Save, incidentally, has an Australian uh, uh, organisation, which you can get to at thelifeyoucansave.org.au. Um, and we're also uh, trying to put pressure on the government, so you can go online there and ask what you can do to help uh, in Australia as well. Right, nice. And speaking of The Life You Can Save, it first hit shelves 10 whole years ago. And in the time since it's ignited something of an ethical revolution. What have been some of the greatest achievements that you've witnessed as a result of the book? We've witnessed uh, a lot more money flowing to highly effective charities, uh, including some uh, very wealthy people who've read the book and been influenced in their giving. Uh, Dustin Moskovitz and Carrie Tuna uh, probably at the top of that list, uh, Dustin Moskovitz was a co-founder of Facebook and uh, they set up, uh, he and his, his uh, partner Carrie Tuna set up a foundation called Good Ventures, which I think has something like $8 billion in funds that they are progressively giving away to the most effective charities they can find. So that's wonderful. Um, and other families that are um, not quite so public and out there, so I won't mention names. Uh, have also given. Um, there's at least one other billionaire who I know has been influenced by the book and has given to some of the most effective charities recommended in it. And there's another family foundation that has assets of about half a billion who've also been influenced 
in their giving, they used to give just uh, locally. This is an American foundation. So in other words, they were giving in what was already an affluent country. Um, and instead, they're giving at least part of that now to the most effective charities working in low-income countries. And although it's certainly true that there's poverty in the United States, as indeed there is in Australia, uh, I think it's also clear that money goes much further in low-income countries. As, as you can imagine, if there are something like 700 million people living on less than $2 a day, uh, it's easy to see that quite modest amounts of money can make a big difference to their lives in the way that those modest amounts of money are not likely to make a really big difference in the lives of Australians or Americans. Um, and you liken the um, attempt to eradicate global poverty as um, being similar to climbing a mountain, an immense mountain that you say we've been climbing for eons uh, through a dense cloud on a global scale, I guess. What kind of changes have you witnessed in the last decade? I'm glad you mentioned the, the mountain metaphor because I think that's a good way of saying what has changed uh, for really all of the time until quite recently, the last uh, decade or two, we have been climbing but through this cloud where we couldn't really see how far we had to go or indeed whether we could ever get there. But I believe that that cloud has now dispersed or perhaps we've climbed through the cloud and we can see where the summit is. We can see that the climb will still be difficult. You know, you can imagine a, a ridge that we're looking at. It's got various obstacles on it, but it is climbable. It's not beyond us to achieve this. And some people think that we can eliminate at least mass extreme poverty by 2030, uh, which next month will be uh, just 10 years. I think that's optimistic, but we have been making progress. I think that's optimistic, but we have been making progress. You mentioned at the start of the program the devastating figure of 5.4 million children uh, dying before their fifth birthday, most of them from preventable poverty-related diseases. What you didn't mention is that when the first edition of the, of the book came out just 10 years ago, it quoted a figure of 9.7 million, mm -hmm. which was the current figure produced by the United Nations Children Emergency Fund uh, when that book went to press. So in just 10 years, we've cut the number of children dying from poverty-related causes from uh, close to 9.7 million to, to close to 5.4 million. That's a huge improvement. Um, we're saving thousands of lives every day because of that improvement. Uh, so I think we can be optimistic that we can continue to make that progress, um, that uh, there's a good chance that if not in 10 years, sometime before mid-century, we will have cut the number of people in extreme poverty at least so that it's no longer numbered in the hundreds of millions, but is in maybe the tens of millions. Um, still, still not a good thing, but I think there will be resistant pockets of extreme poverty that are very hard to eliminate. But we can certainly continue to lift millions of people out of extreme poverty. Right. And for people listening to this podcast who may have been rallied by your words and who want to take some kind of immediate action, where do you recommend they start? 
Well, please do start by going to the website of uh, thelifeyoucansave.org.au uh, or if you're not in Australia, just .org. Uh, you can get a lot of information there. You can, by the way, download a free ebook or audio book of The Life You Can Save when you're there. But you can also look at uh, the recommended charities, which are des described in the book, uh, but they're available online as well, and that list will update from time to time. And on the page where you're looking at a particular recommended charity, if you like it, you can click on a donate button and it takes you to where you can donate to that charity. And that can be a, a tax deductible donation in Australia. So um, I think that's a very good place to start. Um, but do start by informing yourself. Information is power in this situation. And without information, you don't really know whether the charity you're donating to will make the best possible use of your resources or not. Peter, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Emma. It's been really good to talk to you. For the first time in history, it is now within our reach to eradicate world poverty and the suffering it brings. Peter Singer's The Life You Can Save speaks to both the head and the heart, demonstrating how each of us has the opportunity to make a huge difference in the lives of others without diminishing the quality of our own. And to learn more and start giving, visit thelifeyoucansave.org.au.